This morning's scripture will be coming from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And I would like to invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came, ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's really great to be back. It's great to see you. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, And I've had the privilege and the challenge in some ways of being out for the last two months. Uh, I was given by the pastors here time to rest, reflect, recalibrate, and uh, spend time with my family. And so, so much of it felt like a privilege because I did. I got to spend a ton of time with my family, my wife, my kids. My wife, Stephanie, she wanted me to express thanks to you on her behalf, uh, that just how much it meant to her to have me home. And funny enough, four days into our break, we found out that, you know, right now we have four kids and we found out that we're pregnant with number five. And so, yeah. So uh, to to just cut you off before you bring it, yes, we know what causes it. Uh, Yes, yes, we do have a basketball team uh, worth of children. And no, we don't have to buy a new vehicle uh, just yet. But we have another, we probably will. But um, it was really good for her. Uh, first trimester is typically the worst trimester. And so it was good to be able to be around and help. And man, it was, it was such a privilege. And I'm so grateful. And I just want to say thank you for the time off. But it was also challenging. Uh, two months away is a challenge because man was created to work. And it's hard to sit still. It's hard for me to sit still for too long. People would say things like, man, I wonder what it'd be like to have two months off of work. And I'm like, it's not everything that you think it is. Like for two days it is. It's like, this is awesome. I'm doing nothing. And then day three, you're like, I've got to do something. And so week one, I'm ripping out all of our old landscaping in our house and putting new landscaping in. I fixed our pressure washer and then I pressure washed every square inch of our property. And sometimes I went back and did it twice. Like I just, I had to be doing and I had to be doing. And what happened was by the end of June, I ran out of money. Like I had, <laughs> I had no money left to do any more home improvements. So July, I became like an old man. I just started tinkering with the things and I can't buy new things to do. So, uh, but there was that, that just kind of that pull of like, man, we were created to work and to do. And one of the things that, that happened during the break is I couldn't stop thinking about the church, not in a bad way, not in an obsessive way, but man, I just, I, I couldn't help. I couldn't stop thinking about, about us and about where we've been. And, you know, this is about my sixth year here, and we've experienced some really incredible highs, but we've also experienced some pretty painful lows as a church. We've been through a lot, and so reflecting on on those six years, but also dreaming about the future, about where we're going. 
and who we're becoming. And it was, it was great to get a little bit of time to step back, to get out of it, to say, hey, who are we? Where are we going? Who are we becoming as a people? Now, typically in August, we, we spend three weeks every year in August to talk vision and mission as a church. And over my break, I really felt pulled to do something just a little bit different. Because while, while clarity of mission is critically important, our mission as a church, it hasn't changed in years. Our mission, because it's derived from Scripture, it's not something we came up with. Our mission is to reach people with the gospel, to build them up as the church, and then to release, to send them out into the world to live on Jesus' mission in the world. And understanding that's really important, um, but there's something that's just as important to the health and flourishing of our church as having a, a clear mission or strategy. But it's something that's often overlooked or assumed, and that's something I'm talking about is culture. Like, What is the culture of our church? And if you're like me, you're thinking, well, what exactly is culture? How do you define culture? And culture is a hard thing to define. I'll throw some words at you. Maybe one of them will stick. When I, when I talk about our culture as a church, I mean our spirit, the spirit of the church, or, or the ethos, or the temperament, the personality. What is, what is culture? Maybe the best way you could define it is when you go visit a church, you rarely, and someone says, hey, how was that church you visited for the first time? Your answer usually reveals the culture of that church. Because you don't typically say, well, the preaching was this and the music was this. You instead say things like, man, it was a really welcoming church or, or it was not so welcoming or it was kind of just strange or it had a weird vibe. You're, you're speaking to culture. And it's easy in the church to assume that we're going to have a great culture or to overlook whatever culture we do have. But culture is critically important. Someone once said culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, I mean, it's so true. Like, think with me, if, if you have a church that says, you know what, we're serious about reaching people with the gospel. And we're serious about reaching the down and out. But then you go to the church, and it's cold and rigid, and the people there are very cliquish and closed off. Man, it doesn't matter how many whiteboards filled with strategy you have. You're not, you're not going to reach people. But the challenge of culture, vision, and mission, like we can bring that down from on high, right? I can come down and say, here is our vision, boom. Here is our mission, boom. The problem with culture is you can't just say it. Culture is something that comes from the ground up. And so I want to spend the next three weeks talking together. What's the culture that, that we've started to build here? What's the culture that we, we want to build here? When when people come into our church and visit Sojourn East and they leave, what do we want them to leave saying? And so this week, first week, uh, the kind of the first component of, of the culture I hope we continue to build is I pray we would be a church where grace comes first. I pray that we as a church, we would be known that Sojourn East is a place where grace comes first. And we're going to tease out what that means in this passage that Mo just read for us, but but to clarify, when we say grace comes first, that doesn't mean, well, grace comes first and then law comes second. You know, like, hey, we love you. After a month, we start to beat you up. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is in building the church, the first thing to come, the, the foundation is the grace of God. And we want to be a people who embody and who demonstrate the grace of God to others regardless of where they're at, regardless of what's happening in their life regardless of what they've done in the past or what they're doing in the present. 
my prayer is we would be a church where grace comes first and people, no matter where they are, they can come here and they can feel at home. They can feel some sense of belonging here. And so that's why I chose this passage. I think this idea, this concept of grace coming first, it's, I don't know if there's a place where it's clearer than in Matthew 9. And so we're going to work through this text and uh, draw out some implications that are in your outlines or in your notes as we go. Um, I want to pray before we jump in, but here's what I want to pray for. If you grew up in church, if you've spent years reading the Bible, this is a story you're very familiar with. And familiarity, I don't think it breeds contempt when it comes to the scriptures, but I do think it breeds assumptions. I think familiarity with these texts, we, we've read them so much and we've heard about them that, that I think it's easy for us to miss just, just how radical, I don't use the word lightly, how scandalous what happens here in Matthew 9 really is. And so I'm going to pray that God would give us fresh ears and fresh eyes, that he would maybe, maybe wipe the memory bank in our brains of what we think we know about this so that we can come to this fresh, this text anew. So if you would join me in prayer. Father, we come to you. And we come to you wrestling and thinking through big questions of who, who have you called us to be? And not just what are we supposed to do and how do we do it, but who are we becoming? And so I pray as we come to your word and as we study the life of your son here, I pray that you would, the caricatures we make of of people in the Bible, that you would wipe those out and, and the, the assumptions we have that we think we know what is here, you would wipe those out and that you would, you would give us fresh eyes and fresh ears to see the shocking, scandalous, radical nature of this text so that we might be transformed by it and that we as a people might embody the truths contained here. We ask these things in the name of your son. Amen. So we're going to start in chapter 9. We're told that as Jesus went out from there, Jesus had just finished healing a paralytic and casting out some demons and doing some other ministry. And so he's gaining a bit of a following. A following. And as he went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, the Matthew here is the same Matthew who wrote this gospel. And so this is Matthew's conversion story. And it's, it's only a sentence and it doesn't have a whole lot of details, but it does communicate an awful lot because what the text tells us is that Matthew was a tax collector. Now, you don't have to know much about the Bible to know that in the Bible, tax collectors equal bad, right? Not just bad, tax collectors are really bad. But when you really press into understanding just who these guys were, you realize it's, it's pretty hard for us to comprehend just how despised a man Matthew would have been. Like he's not just a flannel board guy who kind of does some shady things. This is a guy that would have been viewed as a pariah in society. He would be viewed the same way that we would view probably drug dealers who stand outside of middle schools. I mean, universally hated. Because what tax collectors were, they, they essentially were subcontractors of the Roman government. Matthew's a Jew, but then he took a job with the Romans to collect taxes. And every time you pay taxes to Rome as a Jewish person, you're reminded that you were not a free nation anymore. 
and that Rome was ruling over you. And Rome, you were living under the impression of Rome. And so for a Jew to take the job, and they were known as being completely dishonest and greedy, and that when they would take money from you, they would often take extra for themselves. These people were hated. And Matthew was a guy who was hated. I mean, we live in a culture filled with a lot of hatred, but take all the hatred you see in our culture, and it would have been worse for this guy, Matthew. He would have been disowned by his family. Uh, tax collectors often were disowned by their family. They were the lowest rung, on the lowest rung of the social ladder. They were hated by their countrymen. They were barred from worship. Like, these cats weren't allowed in church. They just couldn't go. They were viewed as being perpetually unclean. And they were lumped regularly into a category with other sinners. And you'll see quotation marks around the sinners. And the sinners being talked about, like even here in this text, it's prostitutes, thieves. You're thinking loan sharks and swindlers. But, but even that, like that helps us understand because when you, you read the Bible, you'll see often tax collectors and sinners. Have you ever noticed that? They, they go together often. But tax collectors are sinners, so why do they include them separate? I think the reason they include them separately is all the people in the sinners category, the prostitutes and the pimps and the drug dealers, they're like, no, 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 don't, don't throw us, don't lump us into the same group as those tax collectors. Like, we might be despicable human beings, but we didn't sell our souls to Rome. We might not be the best people, but we're not traitors. So I could go on and on. Matthew was hated. And he had a lot of money that he kept to himself. And he's sitting at his tax collector booth, a booth that would turn the stomach of the ordinary Jews who would walk by. And while everyone else saw him as a traitor, a, cro a crook, and a constant reminder of the oppressive fist of Rome, Jesus comes along and he sees him as a human being. Jesus doesn't see him as a caricature. Jesus doesn't see him as an enemy. Jesus looks at him and speaks to him like a human being, which had to be a rare occurrence for Matthew. And he says to him, follow me. And, and Matthew, I'm a little annoyed with Matt, to be honest. He doesn't tell us much else. All we're told is he got up and followed him. And maybe that's because he was embarrassed of the conversation. He's like, we don't need to bring all of the conversation to light. But by the end of it, he got up. And he followed Jesus. And even though we don't have many details, one thing we do know is that very quickly, very shortly after this, Matthew throws a feast with Jesus as the main guest, and he invites all of his no-good friends to come to the feast. And so we read in verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many, not one, not two, many, Tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. Now, if you keep this in context, by this point in time, Jesus had become a well-known religious figure. He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He's calmed a storm. He preached a killer sermon on the side of a mountain that everyone was talking about. He was a moral teacher, a religious teacher. He was a, a miracle worker. He would have been revered as a holy man. And yet... When Matthew throws the party with Jesus there, Jesus is eating and he's drinking with the very dregs of society. 
and they're eating and drinking with him. So it's not just that Jesus is eating with them. They're, they're like, we're going to eat with you. And here's what I want you to see. Jesus was extremely comfortable being around people who were nothing like him. Jesus was extremely comfortable being around morally bankrupt people, being around epic sinners, being around people that everyone else would look at and would say, you are a failure and you are a blight on society. Jesus would hang out with them. He was really comfortable. And those people, the outcasts, the marginalized, they would hang out with Jesus, and and by all appearances, they were really comfortable being around him as well. You say, yeah, yeah, we've learned this for years. Let me connect some dots for you. Let me try to press this in. The risk of stating the obvious, Jesus is God, okay? He's God in a body. And when God comes to town, he not only seeks out, he goes and hangs out with those people who don't believe in him, who don't worship him, who do not obey him, and who don't have the slightest regard for his law. So God rolls into town and he says, who are the people who don't care anything about what I say, who don't worship me? And he hangs out with them and he's comfortable around them. And they're comfortable around him. They actually feel a sense of belonging. I mean, this is, it really is staggering. It should be staggering. And let me ask you, how does that, this picture we have of God, square with the image of God you brought in with you this morning? Like when you think of God, what do you think of? Do you think of this kind of God? It's like, you've, you've disregarded my commands. You don't worship me. You've made a wreck of your life and making a wreck of society. But I want to have a meal with you. Like, this shouldn't make you uncomfortable. If it doesn't make you uncomfortable, I don't think you understand what's happening here. And this really should challenge us as a church when we think about the kind of culture that we have. You know, the common pattern you see in churches is that of believe and then behave and then belong. So most churches, you have to believe the right thing, and then you have to behave the right way. And after you get that down, then you can really experience a sense of belonging in the church. What we see with Jesus is he flips the script. He puts belonging at the very front and center, at the very beginning. With Jesus, you can experience a sense of belonging in his presence long before you believe the right things or behave in the right way. I mean, that's exactly what we see in this text. These people are the farthest from being religious, farthest from being the most devout, and yet they're totally comfortable in the presence of Jesus. Why? Because grace, for Jesus, grace comes first. With Jesus, belonging can happen well before believing and behaving. And this should challenge us as we think about our culture because in a church like ours, which is predominantly white, we're affluent, we're suburban, many of you grew up in the faith, I think it's so easy for us to, if not just simply ignore, you know, the really sinful people and the really bad people, but 
oftentimes it's easy for us to just outright oppose them. And, and I'm talking about addicts. I'm talking about people in the gay and lesbian community. I'm talking about people who've been divorced or been divorced multiple times. I'm talking about people who live together who aren't married together. I'm talking about people who have had children, you know, with different, many different men, women who've had children with many different men, and men who've had children with many different women. I'm talking about white-collar alcoholics and white-collar drug addicts. And then you have things that aren't necessarily sin, and they aren't sin, but, but they do lead to marginalization, things like people with mental, who have mental illnesses, minorities, people who aren't white. And I think what can easily happen in a church like ours is we just become okay with like, hey, we have a whole lot you need to believe and we have a whole lot of ways you need to behave and then you can belong. And I think what often happens in the churches is we intentionally put those things there. They're like big blocks. Like if you really want to come, all right, you got to believe all of this. And then you got to behave in this certain way and once you do one and two, then finally we'll, we'll, we'll grant you a sense of belonging here. And it's actually a means of keeping people out, not welcoming them in. And what we see with Jesus is he kind of comes along and he just knocks them over. No, no. You can belong in my presence well before you believe the right stuff or behave in the right way. I mean, the scandal of this text is that Jesus doesn't, because I know some of you are thinking, well, they repented. That's why he did this. No, no, no. The scandalous text is Jesus doesn't make repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance of people. Jesus isn't standing by the door of the party saying, we're going to have a wild party tonight, you know, with non-alcoholic beer and grape juice. But I have to ask you before I let you in, are you ready to give up your wild living? I mean, that's what a lot of us think Jesus would do. I will, I will feast with you, but you got to promise me that he doesn't do that. He's not standing by the door saying, are you ready to accept me as your personal Lord and Savior? No, he just eats with them. In the midst of their messiness and their broken, he just eats with them. And we don't know if any of them besides Matthew actually repented of their sins. We don't know if they turned and trusted him. We don't know if they became followers. I and mean, they probably did because that's what tends to happen when people get close to Jesus. They start to follow him. But we don't know. All we know is that Jesus sowed his love here as generously and almost as recklessly as the sower sowed the seed. He's just throwing it out. You know, some of it's falling on paths, some of it's falling in the thorns, some's falling on bad soil, and some's on good soil. He doesn't care, he's just throwing it out. And I think this should challenge us as we think about the kind of church that we're becoming. Are we the kind of church that generously throws out that kind of love? If people could have a sense of belonging in the presence of Jesus, do people have a sense of belonging in our presence as his hands and feet on this earth? I would say, I know this is challenging. You know, questions come up like, well, what does that mean? And what does it mean for this social issue or that social issue? What does it mean for this circumstance? I don't have all of the answers. What I can say is if we have a culture where those who are far from God do not feel like they can belong whatsoever, we've missed something major. So if we're going to be a place where grace comes first, we have to rethink what it means to belong what it means to create a culture of belonging.
Because what's so sad in the church, what's so sad is when people's lives become an utter wreck and a mess, these days the last place they want to turn is the church. You know, if someone starts going like they're, they're going to get a divorce, it's like the last thing I want is to go to church and be reminded how sinful I am for being divorced. And so they avoid. And I think the church kind of likes it. I'll tell you, as a pastor, it's easier with less mess. Like my job is so much, if we, if we didn't have mess, gosh, my life would be awesome. Not really, but it would be really easy. And yet, when I think of evangelical churches in America, I just, man, I, I, I think we have a long way to go and creating a sense of belonging for those who are far from God. And I think we have to really examine our hearts if we're not moved by what we see in Jesus here. And I know it's challenging. I know there's questions. People in Jesus' day had questions. Word spreads around town about what's going down at Matt's house. Jesus, you know, the guy who's healing Mr. Mr. Big Rabbi, and the Pharisees, they, they come to check it out. And we're told in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, for a lot of us in our minds, Pharisees go in the same category as tax collectors. When you hear Pharisee, you think bad. But the reality is when you hear Pharisee, you really need to think good. Pharisees were not bad people. They were really good people. They were good guys. They were devout men. They'd given their lives to the service of God. They'd read the Bible every day. They lived a life of prayer, of fasting. They were strict adherence to the law of God laid out in the Old Testament. And I know in the church it's easy to make a caricature of them as just angry old crusty men, and I'm sure some of them were. But when you actually look at the scriptures, you will see that Jesus took the Pharisees more seriously than he took any other group except for the poor and his disciples. Jesus didn't say, well, they're just wing nuts. I'm not going to deal with them. No, he took them seriously because they had a love for God's word and they desperately wanted to live a life pleasing to God. And when they see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, they're troubled. And the reason they're troubled is not not because Jesus is just talking with them. I mean, if Jesus had been preaching a sermon to them, I don't think it would have been as big of a deal. The problem is Jesus is eating with them. He's sharing a meal with them. And you know, to share a meal, even in our day, is, it's something significant to have someone over your house for dinner. Like, that signifies something. It signifies friendship. And that day it would signify intimacy. And oftentimes it would signify like a sense of approval. That if, if I invite you over to my house, that means I approve of who you are and I approve of your life. And so you would go to dinner, like a very religious person, you would only go to dinner with other very religious people. And what happens here is Jesus, he's, he's at dinner and sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees are like, what? No, no, no. I mean, their, their concern was about holiness because the common belief in that day, which, mind you, was taken from a number of passages in the Old Testament, 
was that just like if you eat contaminated food, you can get physically sick. So too, if you hang out with contaminated, unclean people, you can get spiritually sick. And so there are all these laws about who you could eat with and who you couldn't eat with. There are all these laws about how to make sure that you're keeping yourself clean and pure. And when they see Jesus eating with the Pharisees, they're saying, hey, you're breaking all the laws. What about holiness? You're supposed to be set apart, Jesus. That's what holy means. The Holy means to be set apart. And the Old Testament is filled with various laws, rituals, sacrifices, and festivals that are given to set the people of God apart. And I think the objection that raises in us when we hear, like, we need to be a place and we need to live lives that, that create a sense of belonging for people wherever they are. We hear that and we say, okay, but, but what about holiness? We're supposed to be set apart from the world. We're supposed to be different from the world. How do we reconcile these two things together? That's what's happening here. Jesus, I get it. Like you're in the world, but you're not of the world. But right now it looks more like you're of the world than, than just in the world because you're, you're eating with all of these really messed up vile people. It's not what we do. The word says, here's what it says, and it's clear. Psalm 26, the, the psalmist delights. I do not sit with the wicked. Jesus, have you not read these things? You're, you're associating with them. You're eating with them. What about holiness? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why does your teacher eat, eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers, and he gives a common sense answer. But because with religions, religious people, common sense isn't always enough, he then goes to Scripture. The common sense answer is, it's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And I'm the great spiritual doctor, so who do you think I'm going to hang out with? The sick. But then, then Jesus is like, all right, we're going to crank it up a little bit. Remember, Jesus is about 30 years old. These guys are in their 60s and 70s, most of them. They've spent their lives studying the Bible. And Jesus says, go and learn what this means. What? And then he quotes the Bible. Go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, where God says, and this is a, if you're into underlining your Bible, this is something you want to underline and you want to circle and you'll put exclamation points around it's really central theme here. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus, how can you eat with tax collectors and sinners? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I'll be honest, I read that. And I'm like, that's really cool, but I have no idea really what that means. <laughs> like, how does that, how does Jesus hanging out with all of these messed up people how do those two things fit together? And, and you know, I pressed in, and what, what's meant by sacrifice here is all of the, the rituals of religion. What's meant by sacrifice are the cere religious ceremonies, festivals. It's fasting, praying, dietary laws, tithing, 
sacrifice is an act of the will. So it's doing all the stuff, right? And so in our day, it would be like quiet times. And I go to Bible study and I go to community group and I pray and I fast. All good things. But what Jesus says here is that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And it's not one or the other. It's a, it's a way of saying, I desire this more than that. Now, mercy is different. Sacrifice is an act of the will. It's all the things that I do. Mercy is an act of the heart. It's who I am. You could define mercy as love, compassion, kindness, patience, concern for, and a willingness to help those in need. It can be those in physical need, but it's also those in spiritual need, those who are far from God. You see, the Pharisees, they had the sacrifice part of religion down, but they were the best at it. But they lacked hearts of mercy. They lacked compassion for those who are far from God. They, they wrote those kinds of people off as too far gone, as unclean. And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 9 is he's saying, you've memorized the Bible, but you missed the point. Like you memorized it. You can quote it, but you don't get it. The point of the Bible is not just all of the rituals and sacrifices and fasts and ceremonies and festivals. All those point to something much greater. That's not the point. When push comes to shove, what really matters, are you a person of mercy? Not can you do the sacrifice part right. And God's saying, I don't want you to just do what I say. I want your heart to mimic my heart. This isn't the only place Jesus makes this point. Matthew 23, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees again, and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. So just to hit pause there, one of the big controversies, because religious people oftentimes get caught up in what what you know, history tends to look at as silly controversies. But one of the controversies was, should we tithe on our home gardens? You know, I've got spices that, that are grown on our deck, you know, that I used to cook with. And there was hot debate, you know. People were on the Twitterverse arguing and they were quoting. And, and, you, and so it was, should we tithe off of our spices or not? And the Pharisees were like, yeah, we're going to tithe off of it. They'd get the ruler out. You know, they'd measure 10 inches and cut off. They didn't have inches, but cut it off, right? And then it's a tithe. And they did it like saying, man, we're, we're going to take this all the way. Our devotion, our, our sacrifice is going to go all the way. And Jesus says, hey, that's awesome, guys. You tithe off your, your dill and your mint and your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You know, I love that he says that as someone who, who gets a paycheck from the church. He's like, yeah, go ahead and tie. That's great. But he's like, no, no, no. The other one is much more important. And how much more important? So when you think being a merciful person, having a heart for people who are far from God, where does that like line up on the importance scale compared to something like tithing, which if you grew up in the church, tithing is a big deal, right? 
we make a big deal about tithing. How do they compare? Well, Jesus says to the Pharisees, your blind guides, because you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. (laughs) Think about this. You have a gnat, which you couldn't see, or you have a camel. And I don't know what they're cooking in here, but he's saying the Pharisees, their lives, what they're doing is they're straining out the gnats. Like, look at how religious and devout we are because we tithe even off of our, our mint and our spices. Meanwhile, they're drinking down the camel of not showing mercy, justice, faithfulness. Like they, they were so meticulous on the like religious stuff, but they missed the big thing. And Jesus says here, essentially, like you should do both, but if you're going to err, if we're going to err as a church, I think where we want to err is let's err on the side of making sure we do all the, the religious stuff right. And what Jesus is saying, no, no, if you're going to err, make sure you err on being a people marked by love, compassion, mercy, kindness, and acceptance. Make sure you are the kind of people who are the light of the world, who bring hope to people who are utterly hopeless. See, the the problem with the Pharisees, and this is a really important thing to see, it wasn't their concern for holiness. Because every time we talk about these things, I sense it in myself, I sense it in other people, like, well, I want to love, I want to love those who are far from God, but it but I'm also kind of scared. And how do I do that? And when they tell jokes, am I supposed to laugh or not laugh if the joke's inappropriate? And, and all those questions, which are really hard questions, and they're complicated questions. But typically what happens is someone comes along and they just shut it down like, well, I'd rather err on the side of holiness. You know, if push comes to shove, I'd rather err on the side of holiness. And the problem is we define holiness as set apart from, as only set apart from. And so the Pharisees, it's not their desire for holiness, to be set apart from the world, to be different, that wasn't their problem. Their problem for the Pharisees and the problem for so many of us is that we neglect that there are two sides to holy, to what it means to be holy. There are two sides to holiness. Holiness is not just being set apart from the world. Holiness also means that we have been set apart for the world. God did not save us so that we could retreat into a compound and wait until Jesus returns. He saved us so that he might pour out his spirit on us, transform us, and then send us out as agents of mercy into a broken world. And this this is God's design. You go all the way back to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. He says all this stuff like, I'm going to make you, Israel, a great nation. And then he says, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. So many of us, our concept of holiness is we need to be set apart from, but we miss the set apart for. And we feel safer. Let's just be set apart from. Let's just cut all these things out. Let's just live lives of isolation. And when you you miss the, that you've been called into, you've been called to be the light. What happens is you surround yourself with people who are just like you. You have no patience with people who are sinful or might tempt you to sin. You want to be around people who are at the exact same maturity level and intellectual level as you. And before you know it, you got a church that you love, but no one else loves, and your church starts dying. 
You know, it feels safer, we think. Let's err on set apart from, not set apart for. It's easy to do that. It's easy to do the sacrifice part of faith than it is to do the mercy part, but it's not safer. It's not safer. You know why it's not safer? People are, well, I just, if we're going to err, let's make sure we err on the side of holiness. Yeah, of course. But what do you mean? Well, I, I just would, like, let's not get anywhere near the line. Well, sometimes you got to get near the line because that line, it's not just like these abstract things. It's people with souls. When as Christians, we're like, I'm not going to get anywhere near that. How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? But it's safer over here. No, it's not. You know who was over there? The Pharisees. Like they nailed it when it came to sanctification. They were holier than any of you, any of us. And in the end, they're on the outside. Meanwhile, the tax collectors, the sinners, they're on the inside with Jesus. We have to rethink as a people holiness. It's not We're not living lives of obedience if we're just setting ourselves apart from the world but not stepping into the world. We're missing it. There's a world dying out there that's angry and hopeless, dejected, discouraged, and we've been called to go forth and bring hope and bring a message of good news. And it's hard, and that's the challenge, you know, wrapping up, but Challenges is, is a hard thing to do, to walk in the tension. But it's worth it. And for us, I do think we have to do a little bit of counting the cost. Like saying we're a church where grace comes first, that sounds awesome. Like, yeah, that's, that's great. I love that. But like, are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to be uncomfortable? Are we willing to give up our seats? Are we willing to serve in ways we've never served because we'll probably need to serve? You know, I had a friend recently. I said, what do you hope to grow in this next year? And he said, you know, I've, my life's been really easy. And so I pray that I, I could learn how to suffer well this next year. And, you know, as a believer who's been walking with Jesus, I just laughed at him. I'm like, take it back right now. Because <laughs> like, God will answer that prayer in powerful, painful ways. In the same way, the prayer, like, I pray we're a culture where grace comes first. There's part of me, I'm like, do I really mean that? And I do. And I hope you do too, because as we come to the table, that's what we celebrate here. As we come to the table, we celebrate the fact that grace came first in our life, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that while we were, even the disciples, while they're foolish and dumb, Jesus sat down with them and he said, hey, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And then he held up the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood going to be poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come to the table, it's a reminder that we are safe with God, that we are loved by God, but I also hope it's a reminder that we are sent by God to bring other people to this meal and that that we as a community, that we'd be a place where people can come and learn about this meal. They can learn about what it represents so they might experience the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope this passage, I hope hope maybe it blows some of your misconceptions about Jesus out of the water. I think one of the things this passage makes clear is that even if you're anti-religious, you've written off the Bible or Christianity of Jesus, that doesn't mean he's necessarily written you off. I mean, this passage, 
if you're here and you feel like you're far from God, it doesn't necessarily mean God's far from you. And so I would encourage you to press into him. If you're here and you're a believer, I encourage you to come and to feast on the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Let me pray.